I started writing this book um, in 2017. And when I hear authors, I heard that JK Rowling, it took her six years to write Harry Potter, and the first Harry Potter anyway. And when you hear things like that, you think, why on earth would it take you six years to write one book? Can't you just, um, oh, yes, dear, of course I did. Um, um, like, why, why, why does it take you six years? So I've been writing the book since 2017. Um, 2017, I thought I had a lot to say. And it was, um, my, my statements in 2017 were obviously very defensive. Um, um, were very, very defensive. They were very like, you know, this is happening to me. Why is this happening to me? Let me write about it. Everybody should know about my life. It wasn't really about, it wasn't really a, I wasn't thinking like a thought leader. It wasn't about the future. It wasn't about people. Um, it was, it was just about what I wanted people to hear about me and, you know, my innocence or portraying an, an, an innocence. So that was the 2017 era. And I think a lot of stuff happened to me in that time that made me realise that I wasn't ready. Um, that I really wasn't ready for, for, I wasn't ready to be an author. I think I had to sort my life out quite a little bit, yeah. So 2017 didn't happen. And then 2018, um, I met my mentor. So in that time, he's just the kind of person that is very much like, sit down, do nothing, this is what you're going to do, just going to be focused. And, and so 2018, I believe, is where there was a, a lot of transitioning for me. I started to meet people, I started to mentor people, I got a, I got a house, and you know, your, your life just became, my life just became so busy. So there wasn't really time for me to, to start thinking about doing a book launch. There was more important things going on. And at times, Instagram is so full of, especially if you're looking at American Instagram, right? It's full of so many authors. Like, I mean, everyone in America has a book because they understand the things that we understand a lot later. So you can become a you can publish your own book overnight. There are even many people teaching you how to publish your own book. And I bought all the books, all the manuals, all the, you know, the the teachers, um, you know, that say, hey, hey, do you become your own publisher? I bought all of those. But there was too much happening in my life in 2018 for me to think about it. And then 2019, I finally decided, you know what, I want to, um, I want to do something about my journey. I want to do something about my life. I want to document certain things about the everydays of my life. So I first started by filming um, what I was calling like an everyday kind of reality series. And I remember like that literally like three in the morning, the, the show was supposed to go out at like 8 a.m. And around three in the morning, my dad messaged me and was like, nope, not a good idea. We're not doing this right now. And I was like, but we spoke about this last night. Like, I thought we were doing this. I thought this was like the way I'm, this is like, and I was really upset about it because I felt that I, you know, when people ask like, what do you do, whatever, as much as like I'm a businesswoman and all those things or mentor or whatever, I'm a creative, I'm a creative person. And I think because of the way creatives have been portrayed, you know, they're portrayed to be people that don't really have much money or people that don't have much focus I've run away from that title because creatives are not really people that deliver. They don't deliver things. It's like they start projects and they store them for years. Or, you know, it's like sitting there for like 10 years or there's this architectural project they're supposed to do and it doesn't happen. So I run away from that. 
but I'm a creative. Yes, indeed, I'm a creative. And when I was writing the book, I, I actually had to go and think back to the courses I took in school. So one of the courses I was really good at was actually, um, what's that course you take in, Not it's not called Art and Design, it's called, oh, come on, man. Sandra, if you're on, help me. Abby, if you're on, help me. I can't think of this right now. So many words are flying in my head. Design technology, see? So I did, design technology was probably, design technology and food, but except that her food was boring, um, school cooking is boring, but design technology was the only class I really liked. So going back there, there was something about me that wanted to be a creative. And one of the things that the book's going to help me do, one of the fights I'm going to have um, with, in terms of one of the policies I want to help create, is bringing um, entrepreneurialism as a curriculum in schools. That's one of the big conversations I want to have. Young women like me would never leave school if there was entrepreneurism. It just wouldn't happen because you'd be excited. You'd be happy. You'd want to... It will make you create things. It will make you create campaigns. It's so broad. You would want to be able to... You would want to do maths in school if they included entrepreneurism as a... Um, as a GCSEs, as a, you know, whatever. So they do that now, right? Okay, I would love to see that because I've, I still have hundreds of people saying they don't want to be in school. My kid now is telling me she doesn't want to be in school. And let me tell you something now. I have a, a five-year-old telling me that um, she doesn't want to be in school, right? And as a mother, I don't blame her. And you can look at me and think, oh, but your child is five, she should be in school. She's only going to like being in school if I maybe put her in a school that's more broad. And that's why people fight to have their children go to certain types of school because of this kind of, um, because of this exposure. And without trailing off what I was saying is that I didn't realise from a very, from very early on that I'm just, a, I'm a natural creative. And a creative, where I feel as if, you know, I didn't get to, to really explore was because I left school, I didn't learn um i didn't learn the practicalities i didn't learn the practicalities of um i didn't learn the practicalities of how i'm actually supposed to do things like design technology how am i actually physically supposed to do it how am i supposed to design so those are those are people in my creative team know that i visibly know what to do i know how things should look i know how things should be sized but i don't know how to physically do it but again you know, as a creative director, you don't always have to. So the creative process of the book was quite interesting. Um, it made me dig in a lot. It, it made me, you know, um, dig in a lot. It made me look deeper in myself. And one of the one of the hardest things I would say I found with the book was being honest. Was being honest. And I remember, like, I think I I had written like ten chapters, right? I was halfway through the book. And I was feeling very, like, frustrated with the book. Um, it just, there was a lot of noise happening at the time. It was very early stages to what happened with, with the BBC programme. And I was just thinking, okay, like, this is awkward. What do I do? So I went to go and sit down with one of my good friends. We had, we had um, a few hours talking. And we've been friends for a long time. So the person knows me quite well, both knows me then and they know me now which is important to say. And we started, you know, going through the book and he was just like, you're not being honest. 
And I was like, huh? And he was like, Mariam, nobody wants to read this rubbish. Like, what are you actually saying? And this was like early stages. And I'm like, huh? He was like, and he was just like, look, if you're going to write this book, people want to know, um, um, people want to know everything. They want to know this. They want to know that. They want to know this. They want to know that. They want to know absolutely everything about your journey and you can't hold anything back and I remember in the in the conversation with him I was so defensive I was like no why do I have to why do I have to do this why do I have to do that like why must people know certain things about my life like it's my life and and I think that's kind of been my attitude oh wow Instagram just locked off I think that's kind of been my attitude to um bear with me guys let me just figure I I honestly cannot I cannot with the new Instagram, guys. It's so jarring. Okay, guys. Yes. Sorry, Instagram. We're back. Yeah, so I was sitting with this friend and he was saying to me that you are not being honest with us and nobody wants to buy um, half-truth. And he goes, look, man, people are going to read this and they're going to think you're an idiot. You know, you've got an opportunity. You've got one opportunity. Um, You may not do this ever again, but you've got one opportunity, right, to be able to share your truth and give people a perspective and it doesn't mean that you've got to doesn't mean that you've got to be stupid about it but you've got one chance you know and remember people are going to look back at this in 10 years time because once it's on the internet it's on the internet and I came back home from that um that talk it lasted a few hours and I was really upset because I knew that if I was going to listen to what he was saying to me I would have to literally, basically rewrite the whole book from beginning to end because it had so many holes in it. So, and you know, there's there's a thing where you can't even like hide from certain people. You can't lie to certain people about certain things. So as we're sitting down and I read the first chapter to my mate, he was just like, "Em, this is rubbish. Like, it's not the the the, the content. It's not the creativity. It's not the wording. It's just that." what you're saying isn't what it's not like you've got to write what people want to hear but you've got to be honest and i'm telling you the first 10 chapters of the book before what you've got now guys i wasn't honest i wasn't honest i was literally just putting out a lot of emotions so that was one part of the book that was quite interesting um so i came home that night and i think i had a week before my 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 my, um, amazon deadline and I thought, bloody hell, I've got to rewrite this. Now, the truth is this, guys, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm a realist um, as much as I can be anyway. There are people in my life now that don't know me 15 years ago. And writing this book, or 10 years ago, or 7 years ago, or 20 years ago, and writing this book, it was important that I had certain conversations with those people as well so the people in my life today can understand who I was then and how they can help me now. So as much as I was fighting that conversation, I was like, no, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about this. I was just hiding so much stuff. It made me feel so vulnerable, you know, um, writing the book and just basically being honest. So I started, so I thought, like, you know what, I can't stay at home. And because I was just locked in my room for days. So I booked a hotel for a few days and said, let me get into this book and on a few days in the hotel, I'll call a few of the girls to come, we'll do some bits, others will go back, this, is that, and the other. And um, 
then I hit a roadblock. I think we were writing extradition, which is chapter nine. I think in extradition is where it's either extradition, yeah, extradition that is is me and my editorial team's favorite chapter because it just does this so much. And I remember um, one of the one of the girls said, "M, you're tapped." And I can't lie, guys. You know, just one word, it just triggered me. My my focus was gone. I was emotional, I was crying, I was like, oh my God, am I really an insane person? What is she saying about me? Like, and I, I think it was the first time that I had the opportunity to actually look at my life from somebody else's perspective because I was reading back at the chapter and I was like, who the hell are you? Who does this stuff? Like, what is this? Like, what are you doing? And it was, um, it was that for me was the, the big, the time when I had to reflect the most. I had to really start thinking about the next 10 years of my life. In writing the book, I've never spoken about, you guys have been watching me on Periscope for a long time. I have never ever spoken about my about the future like that. I might speak about a new business. I might speak about mentoring somebody, but I've never ever thought about who I will be in the next 10 years. But as I start thinking about the age 40, I start, I'm looking at, um, I'll look at, superheroes that are out there now doing fantastic things and they started to live their life and I know that many of you guys watching me today um I know that many of you guys watching me today will be thinking oh for god's sake she's just saying this but many of these people are saying that their life really starts at 40 their life really starts at 40 and even so much as saying 40 is the new 20 or 40 is the new 30 why is that because they at this age this this 30 age is the age of learning it's really the age where you're able to discover what you're supposed to do next and then give that you give that a 10 year stretch of focus but i couldn't do this with, without first having those really hard conversations um another conversation i had that that really helped me shape the book was with um a friend of mine friend sister of mine called Dr. Gold, um, Dr. Annabelle Gold. And I remember just picking up the phone at two in the morning and calling her and saying, I need a chat. And I was upset. I think I was even crying, just like, you know, I, I don't know if I'm losing it right now, but I feel very angry. So right, getting to writing certain chapters of the book, I realized that I hadn't forgiven a lot of people. There were still friendship groups that, you know, I was angry with. There were still certain people when she just said to me, remove the chapter. So you don't need to write about that. Why are you giving these people so much power? I, I don't understand what you're doing. You know, why are you writing about this? Forget it. Like, forget it. it happened. For, like, she didn't even say as much as forgive the person. She just said, forget it. Just forget it. It's not necessary. You can write this whole chapter without speaking about that person in this context. And I was like, yeah, but why? You know, this person deserves, people need to know what they've done to me and this and that. And she goes, they don't. Why? You know, and you got to have people in your life that are strong enough to question your theories. And all my life, I've never had that. I've never had people question anything I did um, for whatever reason, maybe because it benefited them to not question the things I was doing. But in writing this, this book, I had, you know, sisters there that were like, "M, this doesn't make sense. In fact, what are you actually saying? Like, this sentence is not adding up. You and they will even say you contradicted yourself in chapter three when you said this and this, so you can't say this here. So after she said that to me, again, it again meant that I had to go back into the book and remove chapters. So could you just imagine that I've got three days before completing the book 
and I've been told that I can't write this, I can't say this about someone. And at the time, it was like, she doesn't understand. It, wasn't, it didn't happen to her, so she wouldn't understand. But a little voice inside me told me to listen to her, and I did, and it, it was one of the greatest things I ever did. And I remember um, reading the book back to, or sending a, um, a, extracts of the book to my dad, and he was reading it with um, some other mentors and friends, and they said to him that that's one of the things that they spotted most in the book, that the book wasn't malicious. And that's what made it genius or makes it genius. And I was thinking, wow, now I understand why life coaches are so expensive and also why it's important to have a tribe. Why it's important to have a tribe. So with that in mind, I'm going to read um, my, what am I going to read? I'm going to read my acknowledgements page to you because it's all about tribes. I'm massive on tribes. I'm huge on it. Always been big on it because I know that they help, they really do help. Whatever it is you're doing, um, um, whatever it is you're doing, it's so important that you have a tribe of people that are there, um, that are there to support you. And you don't need yes people to, make, uh, to, to create a good project. You don't need yes people, you need a tribe of people to help you put something really good together. And I'm not just talking about, you know, many of you guys may not write books, but you may be doing your exams, you know, you may be working on a dissertation. It's okay, get a tribe of people to help you put something like that together because you will need those people on different stages of your life. And I think there's something I mentioned in the book about friendships. I remember 2017, 2017 was a good year for me actually, mentorship wise. I would meet my dad often um, in Dorchester and sit down like an hour, two hours. and either just overhear conversations or just ask him questions. And it was such a defining year for me in terms of mentorship because I'd never had that. And I remember one of the things that he said to me was, young people make or create or call people their friends too early in life. He goes, nothing has happened between you guys and you're saying she's your best friend. You've known her two years, you've known her six months because you go to the club together or you wear the same kind of shoes. You're calling uh, your friend. It doesn't work like that. He went on to say that, hey, um, Mariam, I can only call you my friend if you've been doing this thing you're doing with women for 10 years. You then become the friend, you're a daughter, but you become a friend in that space where I can say, oh, I can trust when it comes to anything women, Mariam has been doing it for 10 years. She's the person. And then he spoke about... Um, um, he spoke about uh, my brothers and he was like, I can say he's been doing finance for 10 years and he's been doing recruitment for 10 years. I need to see you do this for a while and us go through certain journeys together before I can call you my friend. And I remember that in writing my acknowledgements. And I remember, you know, a lot of my issues were just childhood things, wanting to be accepted. And you see, these things sound small today. But if you don't deal with those deep issues from your childhood, they will affect you later. Things like, I had an issue with my skin complexion. For like, it's the weirdest thing ever. Like, I was growing up, my, my brothers and sisters were so much more, their skin were much fairer than mine. So I had a complex with my skin. I had a complex with my body. I had, literally, I could just think that everything in the world was wrong with me. I used to think like I was an alien or whatever not. And a lot of them, those things... And it caused me to then look for friendships 
in different places where I'll be accepted. So it's like, oh, okay, so um, my, my, I'm not accepted at home kind of thing. So maybe let me create fr- a friendship group here who might accept me. And they won't call me names or they won't, you know, in an African home, we're very like, you know, we're, we're very racist. You know, we'll say, oh, this person's not lighter than this person. We're very, um, we talk about weight a lot in African homes. And those things do affect children because those are the kind of things that I was kind of running away from. But anyway, um, what I was saying in that, as much as I was running to the wrong friendship groups, right, those friendship groups were shaping my life. And I'm, as I said earlier this morning, I'm a loyalist. So I'm just going to just stay in the friendship. Like, I don't leave things. I don't know how to because I'm, I'm not even because I don't want to leave, but just because I'm comfortable and I can't be bothered to start again. I just say things through and I see things through to the end. And that's been a positive for me. You know, um, it's been a positive for me in terms of I've seen it help me in business. Whereas I've had, you know, how do I say I've got clients that have been clients for 10 years. You know, I've got I've still speak to my employer from when I was 16. So it's allowed me to stay and keep relationships. But it's also been a negative thing in my life because when certain people need to go I haven't really been able to understand that when I was younger I hope that's better now but I didn't understand it when I was younger so writing this book in my acknowledgments one of the key things I want young women to understand is that you will not find your friendship groups in your 20s irrespective of what everybody's saying when you go to uni you'll find your uni friends you get married their kids will be your friends um, um, and then they'll come to your wedding, they'll be your bridesmaids, and you know, the whole concept of how life is supposed to be. I believe this book literally just shows you, right, how um, the opposite of how life is supposed to be in terms of like, you know, you don't have to get married and have kids and whatever and have a job in the city. It, you don't have to do things that way and so on. So one of the big things I really want to point out for young women um, and young men, actually, as well, is that the friendship groups you have today are not the people that are going to shape your life. I found my friendship group in my 30s. And I honestly, guys, like, again, another thing as well that I'm loving and I'm owning, I'm owning my age. A lot of women, are they run away from their age because there is a by now theory. By now, I should be married. By now, I should own a home. I don't know who read that book, but I'm not following that book. In my 30s, I've become, I don't, I've aged backwards. I think I've become more beautiful. I've become more patient. And I've found really good relationships. I've found really, really good relationships. So, like your 20s, guys, yeah, you're just discovering who you are. You're discovering the things you like. You're discovering the things you don't like. But by the time you hit 30, what's supposed to happen at 30 isn't supposed to be a by now, like panic attack, da 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 da. By now, at 30, I think in completing this book, I actually realized I don't want a, a certain type of relationship. And I sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, I believe that I'm writing a manual of what it's supposed to be to be a woman. And I know that may sound like a crazy theory to many people, but as an ex-offender, as a a mother, um, as somebody who's been to prison, as somebody who's had, I'll even go as far as saying a C-section, 
for somebody who's even gone as far as having an abortion. Um, and the list goes on and on and on of my various trials and error as a woman. I believe I'm now beginning to write the manual of what it is to be a modern day woman in 2020. And because I've kind of faced everything. I've, I've worked in the, in the workplace. I've, I've owned a business. I've mentored people. I've worked in retail. There are so many different um, things I've experienced that, that allow me to believe that I am writing a new manual. I'm writing a new manual. And now let me say something to you. Part of that manual is to say to young women is that you do not need the friendship groups of your 20s. If, even if this is all you hear from this morning, the learning of this book, the people you're meeting on your in your 20s, right, they are not, half of those people are going to disappear. I can't remember half the people I met then. I don't even know who they are. If they came up to me on the street now and said, oh, hey, Em, you know you're my friend. From I'm going to be like, what life experience did we share together? And that's so key because what I found in my 30s was that I, I, I found my I found my purpose in my 30s. I'm not saying that you won't find your purpose in your 20s or even at 16. But I'm saying that I find my purpose in the life of those people. I found my purpose in the life of those people because I started to understand what it means to really sacrifice for people. What it mean? And you know what? You know, someone just messaged me now saying, you made me feel better about not having any friends. You know, I'm not saying be anti. I'm not saying be anti, but I'm saying just choose. Just choose where you're going to place focus and who you're going to give energy to. Like for me, for example, you know, um, as I read it, the acknowledgements is the only page I'm going to read for you guys today. And that's why I'm spending a lot of time talking about it. As I, you could just imagine, you know, when you're writing an acknowledgement, yeah, you're guilt tripped. You want to thank everybody. You want to feel guilty that you didn't say thank you to, um, you, you didn't say thank you to, to certain people, you know, oh, how's she going to feel about that? Like, um, how's she going to feel about this? How's she going to feel about that? No, I'm not bound to anybody. I'm not bound to anybody. But what has happened is that this season in my life has allowed me to really value certain friendships and understand what those people are or who those people are in my life. And in return, the, the responsibility I have in their life, you know, um, I'm going to read the acknowledgement and then we're going to take it from there because I want to round up in 10 minutes. So... Being Marimola is a lot of work. It literally takes an entire nation to get me together. So I thought I'd appreciate some of the people who helped me get it right. So this is dad, my biological father. I want to thank you for being my everything. As I grew older, I'd appreciate the precious time we would spend shopping or eating together. You would use this time to, to strategically give me life lessons. No, it would be hard for me to dodge a lecture in my favorite store. Once I clocked to your new found lecturing technique, I didn't mind it much. It showed that you cared. You left me with words and that's the best gift I could have asked for. Thank you for never giving up on me and teaching me how to not give up on others. Now, um, my biological father, and I just say that just to make certain things clear, is like the dream dad. He literally, guys, I mean, I would call him two in the morning, dad, can you put up a, a whatever, a chair for me, or my, my thing's broken, can we go to um, Asda in the midnight and do this, and he's gonna do it, dad, how much money do you have in your account, can I borrow it, dad, can I take this, dad, can I use this, dad, can you, and he's just gonna do it, and he's just gonna be supportive, he's gonna be there, but one thing, he's gonna talk, 
he is going and i used to think why can't this guy just stop talking like you're talking all the time like he's gonna he's not a, a talker like me you know like he's not a talker like that but he is gonna give you that advice and you're not gonna escape him you're not gonna escape that advice if you've got the if you've got the guts to um to ask you've got the guts to listen and i remember one of the things that he would do <laughs> if i'm coming home late guys and my parents did, didn't understand, and I don't think still now, they don't understand my age. I don't know if it's an African parent thing, um, but it's like something happens in their brain, right, where your parent don't understand. Your, it's just madness, like, guys, I, and I, it's an issue for me, guys. I still think it's an issue. But I would be putting the key through the door. As my key is going in the door, guess who's sitting on the, sitting on the stairs? My dad. Hi. Where, are, where have you been? And I'm thinking... Like, and these times, I've had a kid, like, you know, I'm grown, like, what's going on here? Um, he doesn't care. The fact that you, it's not even the fact that you're living in my house. It's going to, I'm going to ask you where you've been. I'm going to ask you who you've been with, why you chose to come home at this time. And that stuff just used to make me feel like, what the hell is this? Like, you know, and it was in a season in my life that I think I still needed it. You know, as much as my, my, I was a mom, I just had a baby, I was, it, I think it helped me become established in church stuff and focus on church things. i tell you why. Because if I wasn't in their house and I didn't have that discipline, I lived alone, I probably would have made more mistakes. I probably would have had guys over the house or I don't know what people do, but they wouldn't allow, like, there was no room for any, there was just no room in my life for me to mess up. They just, it's not even that they tried to. Um, safeguard me from that it's not happening and even now like you know I'll tell my mom oh mom I'm thinking about doing something oh my god it's like have you spoken to PT there's just no peace in my life so I feel like my parents were full-time police officers in my life and um as I said the best gift that he gave me was words you know like he's not with me today and it's it's so it's so insane that as I close 2020 that in this year um I lost him and so much other stuff happened and then this happened. I was just thinking, what would my dad say if this was going on right now, all the madness was going on right now? He'll give me a call, tell me to come to the house. I would dodge this meeting for time and time and time. And eventually, like my dad, when it came to advice, yeah, and funny enough, his office was literally five minutes down the road from my house. He hasn't got shame. He'll drive up, say, I'm outside your house. So I'll come down and we'll talk in his car, in his van. We'll have a chat. He was just not letting go. And for me, what that did for me was it taught me how not to give up on people. Um, whether it's the girls in my house or people that I haven't spoken to for a long time. You know, one of the girls I mentioned in the book, um, I still speak to her today. She's always messaging me. And at, at times it's like, it's a nuisance. It was a nuisance. But just remembering how my biological father didn't give up on me. And if you read this book, you know that I was a terror child from the moment I can go to school alone. You know, from the age of 11, 12, I was just missing. So, and he would, and he would just watch me and he would just be like, okay, okay, you know. But my parents were not the kind of parents that they're going to visit you in jail and send you money for snacks. Like, <laughs> they're African parents, they're strict. It's not like I'm going to send you snacks for stealing. Are you mad? Like, when you get home, we'll make you rice, but learn your lesson, come home and we'll talk about it. So that was interesting. So I was, it was important for me to 
to reference that and thank him for that. And then my mum, she's just she's just a giver. You know, she's great. So I think one of the things that's kind of shaped me, the acknowledgements of this book was more talking about, you know, who I am and the people that have helped shape who I am. And my mum, I think the biggest thing ever was she's a giver. So growing up, as much as all that mad stuff was happening in the house, right, guys, imagine all that mad stuff was happening in the house and you go to your bedroom and some strangers in the house, like, you're just thinking, why are these strangers living with us? Like, to the point where me and my siblings, it just, it just became the norm. Like, we've lived with so many people to the point where there's a lady that has named all her children after us. My mum, she called her children Mariam, Khadija, Amina, and my mum's, all her kids are after us because that's how much my mum, like, has sewn into the person's life. You know, so my mum really taught me about giving. And there wasn't ever, like, a sit-down principle of we give in this house. But there's certain things, like, you know, even the girls that live in the house now, if I go to my mum's house and I don't bring the girls, oh, my God, my mum's going to be telling me off or she'll pack loads of food for them, you know, and she just has certain theories of, like, the fridge, like, anybody's allowed to go in the fridge. If I cook food, anybody, she'll be sad, like, if people don't eat, if you don't give people stuff, if you don't give people money, and I, and it, those principles, in this, if you read the book, you will see that I was guilt-tripped a lot about those things, so if you read the chapter in Spain, that guilt trip of me wanting to look after the girl, it's not a Marion thing, it's my mum's thing. So it's something that I saw at home that my mum wouldn't do certain things. And my mum, like, she's very, like, African um, in a sense where she'll say stuff to me like, you done a deal with somebody, you better pay them. Uh, somebody, somebody's sweat, somebody's blood. You better go and make sure you've done right with that person because she's very, she says stuff like that. Like, this is somebody else's hard-earned money, Marion. You can't just not do a deal and, you know, and, and play them. And so you will see a lot in the book that, there were a lot of things where I, I there wasn't like a, a godly element to it, but there were certain principles, you know, there were certain laws. And those laws, um, I would say, just came from having good parents. And you would say like, but if your parents were so good, like, why were you so tapped? And I'll, and I'll be honest, guys, yeah, point blank, I was just bored. And this sounds like a very stupid thing um, to say, but I was genuinely very bored growing up and very lonely. So it made me just wonder, you know, so free time as a child made me just, just wonder. I would walk around a lot. You know, I, I mentioned the book where I would just walk around and do all manner of things, like nothing even special, just walk around, talk to strangers and just explore things. But again, um, without deviating much, my mum was a giver. I think one of the best things my mum ever, ever did for me was get that cleaning job that I hated her for having and buy me magazines. I was reading books from the... I was reading Vogue, Grazia, Harper's, books from Jimmy Cooper, Marion Keys at the age of eight years old. A Jimmy Cooper book is about this thick, you know, and I can finish that in, like, two days. And I would sit there and read things, learn new words, you know, um, and things like that. So... For me, it was like the biggest gift she can give to me was she didn't have much money, but she taught me how to be resourceful. So let's say she gave me £10, right, guys? What I would do with my £10 is I'll buy a couple magazines and then I'll walk down um, um, for a skate and go to a video shop. I don't know if you guys remember where you used to be able to rent videos, maybe when you guys were too young, but I'll spend a lot of time sitting in this man's shop 
and just archiving his videos, just so that cleaning them all up, just so I can borrow um, his videos, so I can go home and kind of watch certain things. And that, all of those things there has helped me become a creative today. So a lot of the things that I'm doing for my clients, creative things I'm seeing, they're things that I would have picked up from then. Maybe films I've watched or maybe uh, brands I've seen or content I've seen. A lot of the content creation or the things I'm looking at or things I've seen or I've picked up from then. And for me, it's a gift because my mum couldn't afford to do certain things with me then. So that artistic side of things was is so important to me um, as a creative now. So I was really grateful for that. Then moving on, um, thanking, um, I'll just read it from here. Thank you both for trusting me in the hands of Pastor Toby and the nation family to take me to the next level of my journey. With my track record, I know a decision like this could have seemed sporadic, but you supported me all the way. One of my proudest achievements today is my dad watching me get ordained as a pastor before he passed away. And I think for me, um, that is just golden. You know, um, my mum would say things like, oh God, maybe one day you're going to get married or one day, you know, like, it doesn't matter how nice she was. She's still an African mum. She doesn't say that stuff anymore. She's not, no, she's not tapped. But before it would be like, maybe you're just going to get a job one day and just get married and just, they just wanted a relief. So it's not so much that my parents were pushing me to get married, but they just wanted whatever looked like stability. And for them, the answer of stability for me was the nation family. My mom has never spoken about like settling down, da, da, da. They were just crying for stability, hoping maybe a man will come in the forms of stability or maybe, you know, cause obviously having a child helped, it calmed me down a little bit, meaning that, you know, if I wanted to go somewhere, I would kind of think twice about it. Um, but they were hoping for some form of stability, you know, and it came in the form of the nation family. So when they would see that I was consistent, like I don't, me and my parents don't argue um, much. We used to argue a lot, we don't argue much. We didn't argue much um, towards the end of our relationship um, kind of thing. But the only time we would argue would be my coming home late from church. So I started my journey going to a fellowship in Elite. And guys, I was coming home wild hours, like 1.30. And my parents couldn't understand, why are you leaving the baby with us? who does not want to drink milk and you are gone to church. What kind of church are you going to that you're getting home at this time and your baby and I'll get home and literally I'll put the key in the door and my, my, and my dad will be the one babysitting her because my mom's not going to have it. And she, he would literally hand me the baby from the door and she's screaming her face is red. I don't care because I just knew that I found what was going to make that baby okay. And I think months of doing that and my dad would be banging my line, banging my line, asking me, when are you coming home? The baby's hungry. When are you coming home? And I'm just like, yeah, I'm coming my way, I'm on my way. I think after a while of seeing me, um, we used to have a morning prayers. And I and he every morning, you guys know, I'm already a loud person. I'll just be loud, praying, praying. The first few months, <laughs> months, my dad would knock the door. And I remember my dad looked at me one time, I was praying. And just and he just stood by the door. <laughs> and he said, Mariam, God can... He watched me pray, finished praying. And I got up thinking, fantastic, I can start my day. I turned around, the guy's standing there. And he said, God can hear you. You don't have to shout. You're just waking everybody up. I've had a long night. I just want to sleep. God can hear you. And I was like, yeah, dad, but like, this is how I want to express myself. Da, 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 da. And... um. 
I think from that moment, yeah, my parents realised that I had found something that was going to change my life. And there was nothing anybody was going to do. Just the way I was hard bent on getting money, I was hard bent on going to church. I wasn't even talking about being hard bent on, like, being a good person or whatever. I just wanted to go to this place. I didn't even understand what they were doing. I just knew that we prayed and we ate. Um, they used to have a, 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 a kitchen, a elite kitchen there, and we ate and we gathered, and they, the people were just nice. And I just wanted to be like them. I didn't even I didn't even know what they were really on, but I just wanted to be like them. They looked like nice people, and I knew that I wasn't a nice person. So if I spent enough time doing what they did, if I spent enough time praying the way they prayed or giving the way they gave or gathering, and, and what is giving, guys? It's literally coming together. And I would see that, you know, like, guys, listen, yeah, you see P. Nikki, she is a one. Like, the sacrifices I've seen her make in, in her family, in that elite family, People would come in and they would need their rent paid and she's going to be thinking, okay, what are we going to do? And she would gather, she would pay someone's rent or someone needs this. And she would do so many things. Like, And I saw that. And I wanted to be like her. I wanted to be a good person. So I just felt that by doing what they were doing, hopefully everything that people have said about me would begin to change. And it began to change. And my parents started to see that. I stopped being rude to them. And this is for young people that are trying to be saved or want to be Christian. You can't come and be praying in the morning and telling your dad to shut up. It's not going to add up. But that's what I'll be doing. I'm like, oh, shut up. Like, guys, I, I'm not the kind of child anybody would have wanted. It doesn't matter how much of a strict parent you were. I'm just going to tell you I don't care. Like, what's the worst you're going to do? You're going to beat me. After you beat me, what's going to happen? You're going to kick me out. Then you're going to call me to come home. I'm going to go and have fun because... What is the worst that can happen? But then, what? And listen, guys, right? There is nobody in the world that can tell me anything. It, uh, there's nothing anybody is going to tell me. It, it, listen, it, God himself had to, has to physically come down and prove he's God for me to feel like I'm going to listen. That's how much of a stubborn child I was. And there were very few things that would make me listen. But the nation family made me listen. Nobody told me off. Nobody told me do this or don't do that or these are, the, these are the repercussions or these are the consequences if you don't do that. I just saw people and a lot of them and they just seemed to be nice. And I just kept thinking, are these people real though? Are they, gonna, are they just going to turn up on me? And it's almost like God set up that, yeah, every issue that had ever happened to me started happening more public in the nation family. And I just kept getting crucified <laughs> publicly. And I remember a journalist sat on the front row until he was sent back. And I will never forget that day. I'll never forget that day. I was a year in Spat, I was a year in Spat Nation. And a journalist has written this mad story about me. And I, and I didn't really know Pastor Toby that well or anybody that well. And, um, and I, I just remember being on the news every day or whatever. And then this guy comes in, he's, I can't remember his name, I think he's the one that's still writing things about me now. And he comes in and I greet him because I, I don't have a problem with journalists. Yeah, I agree, I'm like, are you okay? Good, I'm like, yeah. he goes, oh, you're married? I said, I'm married. He goes, okay, yeah. I said, welcome to SPAC. And then, you know, one, somebody seldom me because they didn't know who he was. So they sat him at the front thinking maybe he's a guest of our senior pastor or global pastor now. So the services, the, before even 
he comes downstairs, um, um, Pastoni comes downstairs, immediately, you know, protocol, bring that guy to the back. He's sitting on the back now, and Pastoni calls me upstairs, and he says, hi, Marion. I said, yeah, sir. And these times, we haven't had much interaction like that, so I'm obviously shitting myself. And he's like, okay, I've heard there's a journalist downstairs for you. And you know he's thinking, I want to start my service. What the hell is this? Um, and he said, oh, and he didn't even ask me why. And, he, I, and I think he said, okay, this is what we're going to do. And that's always been the stance for Pastor Toby. This is what we are going to do together. This is what we're going to do. This is us. This is what, He didn't know me from anywhere. Didn't know me from Adam. And those are the things that made me change my behavior. Listen, guys, people ask me all the time, have you had counseling? I've been having counseling since I was 11 years old. There's no psychiatrist. There's no, um, what are they called? Psychiatrists, sociology teachers. Well, listen to me, guys. I have seen doctors upon doctors. Don't, pe- people have tried to diagnose me. I've, I've seen them, okay? Nothing changed my behavior. That room, that day, and that room that day was one of probably 50 occasions since. Pastor was just like, okay, this is what we are going to do. They said you'd stole some money. He didn't even know, guys, what had happened. He didn't even read the article. And I'll tell you why I know he didn't read the article. So he says, and let me tell you something now. That service, yeah, like, I, I, guys, honestly, I was so blown that day. You've never seen covering like this before. So on that day... He said, you're going to give your testimony to the church today because I don't even think people in the church really know you or they know about you. So you're going to tell us your story. So that day they called me up and I was shitting my pants. And it's, imagine like, you know, you're Hilton Bankside, it's a glamorous venue, it's massive, you know, and you're sitting there and you don't know people and people are looking at you and they're like, and you know, you guys look, yeah, forget what people say. Spat Nation is not easy. Like you're going to come in there and you're going to think you're bad. If you think you're bad on the road, Come to the nation family, and you can't because there's always another level. Do you get? So I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh my god! And I shared my story, and it was, it was, it was mad. It was, it was just so powerful. What was more powerful than was P. Sam came, um, our global pastor, assistant global pastor came, and he began to share his prison story. And I just started seeing people say, huh? Because remember, there was a transition of people that came to the nation family that hadn't heard his story. And he was a pastor. These times, I wasn't even ordained. So people were just like, whoa, so wait, hold on. He's a pastor. So this is ahead of us doing mass ordinations. This is ahead of people saying this this kind of church. It was evidence that what the nation family were doing was causing a solution. Getting people, I'm just a peace and type. <laughs> peace and went to jail and did a, did a stretch. I'm just a type of peace and, but just a, a woman version, if I can if I can dare to say that. And then after me, there was a, a, a type of me that came as a PK. And then there was a, a scums. And then there was there was various different types of people that just kept getting help. People that the system had failed continuously. People that youth offending teams have failed continuously. People that probation officers have failed continuously. People that circle has failed continuously. People that the tax system has failed continuously. People that signing on at the police station every single day, seven days a week, 365 days in a year have failed continuously. We're getting a chance. Let me tell you something. That journalist left there apologizing to me saying, I'm really sorry. And he left. He didn't write no article. He didn't do anything because he was stunned. And then Pastor Toby came and he spoke. 
And um, he was basically speaking about what I'm saying now, that this is what he's going to do. This is all he's going to do. He's going to keep finding Sams. He's going to keep finding Mariams. He's going to keep finding these kind of people. And I cried like a baby. I cried because I was like, whoa. So that leaving my baby at home, right? That leaving my baby at home all those times, guys, I'm going to cry. <laughs> I'm always getting told off when I cry online. But it's like that leaving my baby at home and letting her cry and having no, no childcare for her in the evening, so I can become like these people, meaning that these people are not fake. Because by now, anybody's going to back out of this. Listen, even if a guy liked you, yeah, and like really liked you, let me show you something now. He's cutting. Like, it's too much. Like, there's no rest. The message every day, family members, church members, everything. Even people in church were like, sir, are you sure? I had phone calls of people asking um, Pastor Lucy, are you sure you trust her, you know, around you? It was just a lot. And I, that, so that service finished. And then I'm ready to go home and I get, I'll get called and I'm like, oh yeah, you got to go upstairs. And I'm just thinking, okay, maybe this is the time they're going to ask me to leave the church. Literally, I'm just thinking, okay, like, it's not like I haven't been asked to leave a church before, guys. I've been asked to leave a church before. <laughs> that church doesn't exist anymore. And it was one of the biggest churches at the time. Um, I just, so I was just used to it. So I was like, okay, yeah, let's, let's, let's go. Um, so I've gone upstairs and, I, and my mind is just thinking, oh, yeah, cool. So I've, I think I've even said to my sister, take the baby, whatever, you know, like take her home because I probably want to walk by myself. Let me hear what they have to say. I was already prepared to hear. Um, oh, I can't see this video. I was already prepared to hear, um, to hear what was going to happen to me. Anyway, so, um, anyway, so I'm going to have to round up, guys, because I'm getting messages and I need to come off shortly. So I was really prepared to, to hear what was going to, what was going to happen to me. And then, um, I get in the room. I was, um, I was, I got into the room and when I got into the, when I got into the room, there was like all the church pastors, all the church pastors were there. Um, and can I just quickly make a disclaimer? When I was saying leaving my daughter at home, I was leaving her with my parents, okay? Yeah, that was what my childcare was at the time. Hence, thanking my dad a lot in the book because he would be the one that would obviously be there um, to do that. So um, when I got into the room, there was like loads of leaders there and what happened was he just began to say that um he, he began he, be, he began to speak to the to the leaders and i think somebody um had made the mistake to send him the article so he was like he was so angry and i've never seen anybody be angry on my behalf or upset for me he, he was like really really angry and he was saying he said to he, he said to the lady the leader he said why did you send me this so he called the meeting they were having their usual debrief I think they had a debrief on a Sundays and um, he said to her why have you sent me this is it because you have access and this is a, a senior leader is it because you have access to my number um, bear with me can you get faith for me please and tell her to respond to the message uh, messages in the group and to say that I've acknowledged it. And that I have corrected it. Thank you. 
um, and it was a senior leader, and he said, why are you, um, why are you sending me these things? Because we're not mates like that. Is it because you've got my number? You can abuse access to send me things. And then he said, do not ever send me anything negative about this person. When it comes to this person, guys, listen, I'm new to the church. I don't know anybody. I don't have no friends like that. Do you get what I'm trying to say? I'm still trying to find my way and stuff like that. So I was just thinking, raw, like, all my days, like, who and how on earth is this happening? And it was just defending and defending me and defending me and defending me. And I just, and I was like, okay. Um, and I was just thinking, oh, okay, cool. Like, thanks, can I go home? He was like, yeah, you can go home now. And they carried on with their meeting. And I went home and I realized that, wow, this is the real deal. This is the real deal. Like, these people actually are trying to help me. I, do you, in my mind, of course, in my mind, a lot of the time, in my mind, I was thinking, well, what's the deal, though? Like, I don't understand it. Like, I was still looking to find out what the deal was. Like, what, like is there something suspect? Um, is there something, um, is there something suspect or whatever? Anyway, um, so with that, my father and mentor, Pastor Toby Edgar, um, I matured quickly as a child and never allowed myself to have a childhood. But being under your leadership is like getting to start my life at 14 again. Only this time, with all the resources and people, I needed to shape my future. What is this I'm seeing? Um, let's have a look. Oh. Oh. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Thank you. Process, right? I'm going to carry on. What, what perfect timing, what perfect timing for my, for my thanking section. So my father and mentor passed Toby Edeboga. I matured quickly as a child, but I never allowed myself to have much of a childhood. But being under your leadership is like getting to start my life at 14 again. Only this time, with all the right resources and people I needed to shape my future right. <laughs> I say this every single day, guys. Um, being in the nation family is, for me, is like, it's almost like if you read this book back to front, from Plasto to um, the nation family, it's literally my life starting again with a mad, I've just seen it, I've just seen it, thank you, with a mad upgrade. I'm not going to get distracted, I'm trying not to be distracted. Um, it's a mad upgrade. So it's like, imagine being 14, 15, guys, yeah, and then... You have nothing, but your parents are great and they're really trying, really trying their best for you. But um, you guys are distracting the hell out of me. Um, um, but it's important that I say this before I close, guys. My parents were great people, but they didn't have what they needed to raise a, a girl in London. They didn't have the exposure they didn't have the exposure. They didn't have the exposure. Um, and for me, they didn't, they didn't have the resources. And even if they had 
even if they had the resources, yeah, there were just certain things that they didn't know. Like, there's some certain conversations I can have now with a PT that hella awkward though, that I can't, I can't have or couldn't have with my dad at the time because he just wasn't relatable. He didn't really get it. Do you get what I'm trying to say? Um, okay, I've got to round up. It seems like I've got to round up this, um, um, I've got to round up this, um, this particular periscope now. But I'm going to close and I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say thank you to Pastor Toby um, for allowing me to be a child again. Um, I don't like it all the time. In fact, I don't like it at all. But I'm thankful for it because it works. I don't have to like it though. Yeah, okay? Disclaimer, I don't have to like it. Um, but I'm grateful for it because it works. Um, and I refuse to change this. I said just a few hours before writing this, I thought I was being told off again because I wanted to do a billboard. <laughs> I wanted to do a massive media campaign and you were telling me why I shouldn't do one and you wanted it to be organic and you wanted it to work for me in God's way, in God's timing. So I thought just a few hours ago before writing this, I was having the biggest strop of my life. I think it like, I know, I think everybody in my phone book knew that day that I was having a strop. So, um, thank you for allowing me to have the strop. I, I was sulking because I thought you didn't understand. The truth is, no one understands me more than you do. And no one has been more invested in my life and the life of my, my daughter more than you have. My track record guaranteed that I, would amount to, I wouldn't amount to anything more than what I've been for the past 10 years, but then you intervened and saved my life. How freaking hilarious is this, right? As I'm reading this, he goes and pulls the fast one. I know he did it. Okay, bye everybody. <laughs> Thank you. See you later.